You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So I'm in my study at the house, and my wife says, Babe, come in here, you got to see this. And she's got her iPad out, and there's a promo from Meadowbrook on there with Keith talking. <laughs> She listens, and she's looking, and she's smiling, and she turns to me when he gets done and says, who is this guy he's talking about? i got to meet him. <laughs> Thank you for this opportunity, really. Uh, Keith and I go back a couple years. 94, was it? Yeah. Uh, you want any good Keith stories? i got a bunch. Okay. <laughs> so see me after. Five bucks a whack, it's fine. Okay. Um, he wanted me to tell my story and share scripture with you. I'd like to do that. The, the only problem is the ogre clock, you know, because I'm 76, so my story's kind of long. Uh, but I'll try and package that a little different along the way. Um, my mom and dad came out of the Depression. Uh, she was born in 1914. He was born in 1910. Uh, farm families, tobacco raisers in southern Maryland, uh, dirt farmers, subsistence stuff. Uh, There weren't any grocery stores, there weren't any inside bathrooms, there weren't any hot water except a pot on the side of the cook stove, etc., so forth and so on. We're talking rural, way back when. In the midst of all this, uh, my mom's mother died when she was four days old. She was the youngest of ten. So in a farm community, you swap out the kids uh, because a man with ten kids trying to raise tobacco with no mechanized machinery and all the rest of it, you got your hands full and everybody needs to work. So my mom was farmed out to a bunch of different families till she was about 10 years old, farms around the area there. Uh, she and her brother, a twin brother, born at the same time. She grew up not knowing her family all that well, and that kind of set fear in her and scared her to death right off the bat because insecurity was the middle, her, her middle name. My dad was the oldest of uh, four boys. One brother died of pneumonia when he was 14. The other one was shot down over Cherbourg in World War II. Uh, No survivors, nobody got out. The the plane took some flack on its final run, on its bomb run. The other brother was missing from action when I was born. Uh, The spring of 1945. Uh, They didn't know whether either one of them survived, so I got stuck with both their names. One's name was Edwin Berkeley, and the other was Edgar Russell. So I'm Edgar Berkeley Hardesty. Uh, The name came from them. The one was finally found. He just got separated from his unit. and he went home to be with the Lord and uh, buried him about 15 years ago now. So I grew up in his household with people who came out of the Depression, who were living from hand to mouth, uh, who knew how to scrape and how to s- scratch their way through life, dependent on one another, but incredibly insecure because what had happened in the economy, in the Great Depression, as well as my mom's youth, produced a family that had to be safe in everything. Don't do that. You'll get in trouble. Don't do that. It'll break. Don't do that. You'll get hurt. No, you shouldn't try that. It might not work. You'll lose everything. Hmm. When I was a very young one, my dad's company went on strike. They were out for 15 months. He was driving a bus in in Washington at the time. My mother came down with cancer and nearly died. I was 10 years old. 
So he moved to Baltimore, another insecurity in their lives, because he lost everything, lost the house, lost all their savings. Uh, and I lived with an aunt for three years until dad could finally get back on his feet and my aunt nursed my mother back to health, uh, what little health there was left. She was an invalid pretty much the rest of her days. Um, at 49 years old, my dad had his first heart attack. You can understand that, uh, the kind of background he had. And for 20 years, he died of heart disease. In the midst of all this, he tried to go in business to finally get out of the laboring market. Uh, he was a good carpenter. He was a good mechanic. And uh, tried to go in business with this guy. And that lasted about three months. And he came into the shop one morning. And the guy had cleaned out the shop, cleaned out their bank account, and taken off with the money. And once again, everything fell apart. Lost everything. That was when he had that first heart attack. He spent the rest of his days as a laborer for Bethlehem Steel in Baltimore. Uh, I grew up hearing, don't do that, don't try that, you got to be safe, don't get out of your way, etc. At somewhere around 13 or 14, it just dawned on me that I couldn't live like that, that I couldn't face things that were negative. That just seemed wrong. And I'm not sure I had a handle on it then. You just knew in your gut, that's not me. That's not how to live. Uh, Mom said I came to know the Lord at seven years old. I don't remember, but I don't remember ever not knowing the Lord. I remember a whole bunch of times where you wouldn't have known it, <laughs> but I always knew it. Yeah. Those were tough years, uh, teen years. Uh, they ought to be secure years where you're allowed to try things on, check it out, learn things for yourself, find out what's true and what isn't. Uh, but mine were quite upside down and backwards. So I decided that uh, I was going to try everything. Pretty much did everything that I was allowed to, everything that I could confiscate or grab or fight my way into or whatever. Always the tall, skinny guy with a big mouth, which means somebody smarted off with me. I had to come back with some wise acre retort and usually meant I got myself plowed into the dirt because I was the skinny guy, okay? <laughs> Pounded with great regularity. You'd think you'd learn something after a while, okay? So uh, I went to University of Baltimore after graduating from high school, and I was majoring in business management and corporate finance, headed for law school. Uh, the world desperately needs another lawyer. <laughs> so about three years into that, uh, halfway through my junior year, Lyndon Johnson thought that I should see a little bit more of the world. Uh, the guy down the street said, you're on next month's list. He's on the draft board. This was the big ramp up for Vietnam, 1966. He said, you want to do something you want to do rather than what they're going to tell you to do. You better go find what you want to do and sign the papers and all the rest. So I enlisted in the Air Force for four years, which beats two years being drafted, right? Yeah. <laughs> And I always wanted to fly. Love planes, made model airplanes as a kid, you know, the gas engine jobs and all that you control on the big wires and so forth and so on. Just had a ball with that. Loved it. Always wanted to do things with my hands. Uh, I guess I got that from my dad. Very mechanical, uh, very astute with that. Uh, by trade, I'm a carpenter way back when. So you understand the background. So the model airplanes wanted to turn into real ones. I wanted to be a crew member. And in the Air Force's marvelous wisdom, they made me weapons and munitions, not crew. <laughs> That seemed to be in extreme demand at that particular point. They were very short on weapons specialists and munitions, everything from 
sidearms and grenades to thermonukes, uh, sometimes called hydrogen bombs. Uh, stateside in SAC, that's what I did on B-52s and missiles. Uh, overseas, where I spent uh, a great deal of my time, 21 months in combat, it was uh, iron bombs and air rescue. One of those years of the 21 months was uh, in Da Nang. Uh, I was uh, in charge of the munitions for the squadron uh, and armed all the air crews and flew myself as the door gunner. Um, our job was to rescue shot down pilots uh, wherever they may have been, wherever they could be found. Uh, the unadvertised mission was extracting deeply inserted teams wherever they happened to be. If they couldn't make their LZ, they couldn't get out, we had the job to go get them. Sometimes you had to have rather heated discussions with the other folks to allow them to let them go, uh, but <laughs> that was part of the process along the way. I tell you all that simply to say my background was an unusual one, but I suspect that some of you can identify with some of the pieces of that along the way. One of the things I was told when I went in the military by my parents who wanted security more than anything else because they never had it was don't volunteer for anything. Don't step forward for anything. Just keep your mouth shut, do your job, keep your, you know, your hands clean, etc., so forth and so on. Don't volunteer. I thought that was the dumbest advice I'd ever heard. So I volunteered for everything. I was the go-to guy. I didn't suck up to anybody. You know, I didn't, I didn't curry favor with anybody. But anything that came up, Ed'll do it. Ed'll take care of that. Whether it was cleaning the latrine, picking up cigarette butts, or doing something technical with the equipment, etc., Ed'll do that. I'll do that. So I got the reputation of being the go-to guy. And if I couldn't do it, I asked for help to find out how to do it. And the next time it came up, I could do it. My dad did teach me that. Hire a professional one time. Go to school on them, and next time if you hire them, shame on you. you know, it's now on you. Bottom line of all this is, all the guys that are giving me a hard time for volunteering for everything, all the guys that you know, are laughing at me, I made staff sergeant in three years and one month. Now they all work for me. Guess who got the garbage jobs then? <laughs> the other guys. What that did, though, was when I got to Vietnam, they put me in charge of the weapons for the squadron. Uh, everything from sidearms up to the M60s to miniguns to you name it. All conventional stuff in those days. Um, the old man called me into his office. Our, our commander was full bird colonel. And he said to me, uh, we have a problem. Our men are having difficulty with the weapons they're carrying. You know, when they come out of the weapons shop and munitions people, they're only operating 67% of the time. I can't have my men going into combat and they only work two out of three. Uh, that's got to stop. It's got to stop right now. You are going to be the solution for that. And if you're not the solution, I'll find someone who can be rather quickly, and you will not like the duty you'll be assigned to afterwards. <laughs> so I said, well, Colonel, what, uh, what kind of authority do I have? He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to put them on flight status. He says, I can't do that. They're not air crew. They're not trained. I said, can I put them on temporary flight status? He said, what do you want to do? I said, whoever signs off on a system, on a weapon, on anything that was broken or misfired or miscalculated one way or another, they fly that weapon the next mission. It's on them. 
They signed off. They signed off putting skin in the game. Overnight, our proficiency rating went from 67 to 93 percent. The only time we had a misfire or anything was because of mechanical difficulty, not human error. <laughs> the military, in their great wisdom, gave me a medal for that. <laughs> for 11 and a half months, we were up in the 90s on proficiency. All I did was what Nehemiah did. You remember when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the walls? How did they get the walls up so fast? And how did they do it first time? Because none of the people back with Nehemiah knew how to build a city. He did it this way. You, you, where are you going to live? Right there? Good. That section of wall right next to your house, that's the section you rebuild. What's the point? You've got skin in the game. You and I cannot afford to back away from life and act like it's somebody else's responsibility. It has to be shoulder. So I got out of the military. My girlfriend gave me one choice. Me or re-enlist. I said, I'll take you, baby. <laughs> that was 51 years ago. Three kids all married in the Lord. Eight grandchildren. I don't know how many cousins and nephews and nieces, etc., so forth. As I was talking to Hannah a few minutes ago, I became a great uncle again on the plane on the way out here. It wasn't delivered on the plane. It happened back home. Ten-pound uh, baby boy, she said, mm-hmm. <laughs> got out, got married to the gal that uh, I had been writing to for ten months. And in the midst of all that, went back to school to try and finish up, get my degree, go on to law school. The Lord shifted our gears a hundred times in the midst of that. Long story short, two years into that marriage uh, with a brand new baby boy, he made it very clear to us that, that uh, this is not the direction to go. So at 27 years old, we started over. We checked a bunch of schools out and ended up choosing Philadelphia College of Bible, which became Philadelphia Biblical University, which became Cairn University. Uh, Long story short with that, uh, it took me three years to finish my Bible college, even though I had three years of college before that, because where do you put money banking, corporate finance, and business law in a Bible degree? You know, so I was probably the most overqualified undergrad they ever had, you know, 187 undergrad hours when I finally graduated. Uh, now we've got two kids. So stayed in the church that we were working in for a year after that. I was the associate pastor. Uh, and then went to Dallas Seminary. That's a four-year program down there. We had our third child. And my dad said, you know, every time you move, you have a baby. Quit moving. So, <laughs> so that four-year program for a guy with three kids and no sugar daddy paying the bills, <laughs> uh, we crammed the four-year program into five. And in the midst of all this, uh, I was trying to sort out what was going on in my heart. Oh, this is hard. I was a train wreck when I came home from Vietnam. You wouldn't have known it. It was all in here. I had no idea where all the anger was coming from, where all the depression was coming from, and it kept bouncing back and forth between them. Thirteen years after I got home, they came up with a pretty name for it. It's called PTSD. 
I'm a poster boy for the VA now, for PTSD. <laughs> I work with a bunch of vets that are also wallowing in their PTSD. Uh, one of the things I do outside the, the church and the school. Long story short, 13 years into my return, I was sitting in a faculty meeting and uh, I was teaching at a Christian school while trying to start a little church in Maryland. And uh, the headmaster wanted us all to wear our uniforms. Anybody was a vet, come, come to school and wear your uniform. Impress all the kids, etc. And uh, my feeling on that was, you know, I'm very proud of what I did. Uh, and I don't back up or carry water for anybody with that. I'm very proud of what I did. Uh, but I'm not going to be your dog and pony show, you know. I don't wear a uniform on demand because you want to look good. <laughs> so, so I didn't. But the guy that did was a Vietnam vet too, and he was the math teacher at the local high school there. But he was stationed at a base called Cameron Bay. He flew into the base, never left the base, spent a year there, and flew back home again. Never shot at, never took a round of artillery or mortar, never had a moment's problem, and his job as a Vietnam vet was lifeguard at the officer club swimming pool. <laughs> so what'd you do in a war, Daddy? I got a tan. Okay. <laughs> he starts telling war stories. I knew he was lying, because I knew what he had done. I knew where he was. And he's talking about all kinds of stuff. Number one, that was impossible for any one person to ever be involved in. And number two, he's just jacking him up. You know, he's just jerking him around. And they're all, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, something came over me and I just got mad. My guts were like on fire. I was shaking and I started crying. And I could not stop crying. I mean, blubbery, snot all over the place crying. Not in control of yourself. Got up after making a total fool of myself, walked out of the faculty room. It took about 15 minutes or so in the restroom trying to get my act together. From that day on, it was like the poison just drained out of me and Jesus began to heal my heart. I've been told that for a number of years. One of my profs at Bible college didn't understand what was going on inside of me. I didn't understand what was going on inside of me. I was so broken, I had no idea how beat up I was. From my youth, my teenage years, on into the military, 21 months of combat, too much blood, too many dead people, too many mangled bodies, too many letters to mom or to a wife back home, etc. Just eats you alive after a while. And all that stuff is right there all the time. He kept saying to me, he let me in his office and I'd fall apart in his office for a little bit and I'd get my act together and go back to class. He kept saying to me, trust the Lord, he'll heal your heart. Give it time, give it time, he'll heal your heart. Thirteen years after I got home, November 11th, 1982, he began to heal my heart. I couldn't talk about a thing until then. Since that time, I've been trying to assess what happened. Why am I still alive? I can relate at least three instances that I'm aware of where I should be in a body bag 
and not the people we put in a body bag. Yeah, the shrinks call it survivor's guilt. All the blood and gore is called post-traumatic syndrome, disorder, whatever. You're a mess. You're a wreck. The shrink at Lebanon decided that I was suicidal. And when she asked me what, what was causing me to keep my marriage and my kids are straight and, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm teaching at a, at a collegiate level, you know, how come you're succeeding? We've got guys coming back from the Gulf that are, you know, crawling in a corner somewhere, snorting something or pouring it down their throat or sticking it in a vein. I've seen your records. I've seen where you were. I've seen what you've done. You should be one of them. Why are you functional? Highly functional. I said, it's easy. Jesus healed my heart. She says, I can't write that down. I can't put that on the phone. I said, I'm a lady. I don't care what you write down. That's the truth. She says, well, do you want to join our little talk group? I said, no. You want to join my group? That ended the conversation right there. <laughs> What's this all about? Because I used to read Job, especially in Bible college, and think, he never got any good answers. The guy got trashed. His family was wrecked. His health was wrecked. His advisors were losers. His dear wife cataloged the whole situation by saying, look, you're done for. Just curse God and die. Thank you so much, dear. You bless my heart. Okay? You know. And when he confronts God with this and he begins to demand that God give him an answer because he's a straight-up guy and he can't understand why all this is happening to him, what's God's answer? At least in the book of Job. I'm God and you're not. It's a really good arrangement if you keep that in mind. Works really well when you keep that in mind. But he never got the answer, why do the righteous suffer? How come since I gave my life to you, I seem to be getting it in the teeth all the time? I hear these people talk about it all the time, and I don't know who they are and what planet they live on. Come to Jesus and everything is wonderful. Come to Jesus and, you know, there's tulips and rosebuds all around you. Come to Jesus and it's marvelous. My experience has been come to Jesus and he'll tear down your meat house. Come to Jesus and it pretty much all falls apart. Come to Jesus and you better be ready to rebuild because you're going to get ripped up. And I didn't know why. I didn't know why. And Job never got the answer until I was reading 2 Corinthians. Hmm. Now it starts out in double talk, okay? If you've got a Bible, chapter 1. If you don't, i got one. <laughs> I started reading this. I remember preparing for a class. We were supposed to come in and outline 2 Corinthians. We were supposed to talk about this. And the <laughs> I said, well, this sounds like a double talk routine. It sounds like, you remember who's on first, what's on second, and all that? This is wacky. Let me, let me read it for you quickly. Beginning in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, read fast with me and you'll see. The God of all comfort who comforts us so that we'll be able to comfort those who are comforted with the comfort by God who is comfort abundant in Christ uh, for your comfort, for we are comforted in your comfort uh, who he shares of our comfort. What? Comfort, 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 comfort. What's going on here? Sounds like double talk. Slow down. 
unpack it. What's he saying? The God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in our affliction so that... (laughs) Purpose clause. Why does he do that? That's what I've been asking. So that you will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. If I haven't had need of comfort and been comforted by the Lord, I can't help you. I need to have been there. Otherwise, I'm giving you somebody's notes. I'm telling you a story somebody told me. I'm cranking out something I was taught by somebody. He takes us to hard places so that he can be the comfort in our lives so that we are equipped not to know what you're going through, not to fix your problem, not to be the great mahaf in your life, to lead you to truth and wholeness, but to introduce you and help you get to know the one who can comfort anybody in anything. And he takes us to places in our life where he's all we got. He takes you to the end of yourself. God never gives you, the politicians and the theologists say, he never gives you more than you can bear. It's not been my experience. He regularly gives you more than you can bear. So he takes you to the end of yourself so he can be your supply. See, because everybody around you starts looking at you, saying, dude, why aren't you pouring something down your throat? Why aren't you snorting something? Why aren't you sticking it in a vein? Well, because Jesus healed my heart. Yeah, but all that crap is still there. All that garbage is still there. You're still hauling all that around. That's who you are. That's what's made you. That's what broke you. That's what trashed your life way back when. You're trying to figure out what's going on? Well, yeah, I know. But you don't understand. Jesus healed my heart. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? Are you past all that? Are you now this holy guy? Yes and no. I'm not past all that. I'll never be past all that. It's part of who I am. It's how I got to where I am. But he's the one that steps in. And you realize, because you're watching me, that I'm not up to this. That I ought to be in a corner somewhere, snorting or stuffing or drinking. But instead I'm not. And I'm functional. But it's all still there. Yeah. And it keeps me broken. I was sharing with the boys last night. There's two kinds of broken. There's broken that disables you, that puts you in the corner. And then there's broken where Jesus is your strength. And you know you're broken, and he's the one that picks you up. And everybody else knows you're way past your ability. How come you're still functional? Because Jesus healed my heart. You getting that out of that? No, there's more. Chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests us uh, through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. We are the fragrance of Christ 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I smell like Jesus. Really? It's not what my wife tells me. <laughs> What's this of all of that? Fragrance of Christ. Well, wait a minute, it's not the fragrance of Christ to you. It's the fragrance of Christ to God. Because to the person that's perishing, read on. To the one aroma from death to death, to the other aroma from life to life. To brothers and sisters in Christ, that does smell like Jesus. And I see him in you now, because I know you're way past your resources. And to the one that's dying, it smells like judgment. Because you're doing well, well, they're falling apart, and they can't figure it out, and they're not ready to trust the Lord. It's an amazing situation when you come down to it. And it says in, at the end of verse 16, and who is adequate for these things? You get the answer all the way down in verse 5 of chapter 3. End of, end of verse 4, verse 5. Our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. So I'm not adequate. I'm made adequate. And if I think that I'm adequate for any given situation, I can handle this. I'll call on you, God, if it works out that I'm really past my resources. You're already past your resources. I broke you a thousand times to make you very clear about being past your resources. You want to depend on them? You're going to go back to brokenness again. Or you can depend on me and have that brokenness be the strongest thing in your life. Because with your brokenness, you understand that you are utterly dependent upon me for everything. And when you get the wise idea that you can handle this, and you're not including me as your head, your comfort, the one who energizes you and moves and is the strength in your life, well, I guess it's back to the woodshed again, isn't it? It's back to unexplained pain, calamities and disaster that you don't see the Lord in the middle of anymore. So wise guy Ed has to keep asking questions because that's a lovely platitude and that's marvelous, but it's too academic. How's this work? What's this look like Tuesday morning, Thursday afternoon, in my life, with my kids, at my job, with my wife? What's this look like? He said, oh, glad you asked, son. <laughs> look at what it says. Verse 13, chapter 3. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face. Drop down to verse 18. But we are all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit, has done so, etc. Move on down a little further in chapter 4 to verse 4. So that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, a little further, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who also showed in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's going to shine out of me. I know Keith has said this a thousand times. To sit in the church. You're the church. I'm the church. When church is over on any given meeting, the church gets up and goes home, or the church goes to lunch or supper or whatever. The place that God indwells is not buildings made of brick and mortar. The place that God indwells by his spirit is you and me. 
We are the temple of the living God in this age for this generation. A lot of them, the only Christ they're going to see, this side of the great white throne, is the Christ they see in you. So I come back to my question again. How does that get out? How am I out of the way so that the Christ in me is visible? The fragrance to God is a fragrance to you as well. Ah. Where does this take you? Verse 7, chapter 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power, uh, the power of and the will be of God and not of ourselves. What's that mean? You remember Gideon, Judges chapter 7? He's got tens of thousands of men. He's about to face the Midianites, and God says, you've got too many guys. Send a bunch home. Thousands leave. Anybody that's married, first-year marriage, send them home. They leave. Anybody that's scared to death, send them home. They all leave. What's he down to? 300 guys facing tens of thousands of Midianites camped right across the valley. I love to read that story when I'm standing at Ain Harod, where he was, the spring where the men drank, looking out at the Jezreel Valley, where all that was gathered together. It's amazing when you walk the land with a map in one hand and a Bible in the other, how all this just comes alive. Quite a beautiful experience. It's kind of like the difference between academia and real life. Academics is a very artificial environment. Real people, real life, that's a different situation. So here's Gideon with 300 guys left. God says, here's the plan. I want you to send some spies over there at the changing of the guard and listen to what they're saying, middle of the night. They come back and report, these guys are having a dream that we're going to take them out. We've got 300 guys. So Gideon says, here's the plan I got from the Lord, okay? I want you all to have a shofar, a trumpet, ram's horn trumpet, and I want you to have a torch. And we're going to separate into groups. The group with me, my 100, we're going to be on this side, and this 100 here, and this 100 there, and we're going to surround them in the middle of the night right at the changing of the guard where they're most vulnerable. You know, the guys coming on guard duty don't have their night vision, and they're all scared and jumpy. And the guys going off duty, they've had it for today. They're done. They're over. It's turned off. They're heading for direct. Okay? So it's a very vulnerable time. That's when we're going to hit them. 300 guys against tens of thousands. So here's what you do. Your torch will be lit, and you put a ceramic pot over the top of it. So now it's not getting enough oxygen to blaze. It's just like a punk stick underneath something that's almost completely cutting off the oxygen. You got your shofar on the other hand, right, boys? Yeah, okay, when you hear me shout, everybody blows their trumpet, smash the ceramic, and yell with me, the sword of the Lord and Gideon! 300 guys against tens of thousands. Some estimate as much as 22,000 enemy. Sounds like Chesty Puller at the Chosen Reservoir, if you know that story. Bottom line of all this is, what happens when you break the pot? The torch flares up. And 300 guys look like a massive army completely surrounding the Midianites. But it's not. But that causes all kind of confusion and fear and insecurity, and they begin to fall on each other and run into each other and kill each other, lashing out at nothing in the middle of the night in the dark. 
God gives them the victory. Whose victory is it? Gideon's? I think not. 300 against tens of thousands. Whose victory is it? God's. Is that what he does with us? Is that his intention? We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power uh, of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. How does the Jesus in me get out? He breaks the pot. Again and again and again. Now the following paragraph makes sense. And it never did before. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. You see, the death that works in us works life in you. The outer man is decaying. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, we look at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. So Brother Paul, who penned these words, now made it possible through the Spirit of God and his guidance for Ed Hardesty to understand. Why does he break me? Why does he take me through stuff? Why does it never seem to end up where I'm being glorified? Because the Jesus in you is fighting to get out. He breaks the pot in order for that to be possible. You know where the word sincere comes from? It's an old Latin term. It comes from the word sincera. Potters used to make pots and sometimes air-dried or kiln-dried. They would crack in the baking. And that would ruin the pot. Couldn't hold water, couldn't hold liquid. So before they would decorate it, before they would paint it, they would take wax and melt it and put it in a crack. So that it looked like a whole pot. But when you put hot liquid into it, the, melt, the wax would melt, and now you've got a leaking pot, and it's no good at all. And the guys that made good pots that didn't have wax in it called it sincera pottage. Sincera means without wax. That's a good pot. Christians that are whole pots aren't much use. That sounds contradictory. That sounds outrageous. We were designed to be a bunch of crackpots so that we don't smell like us. We smell like Jesus. And the people that know us best ought to know the most that we're not up to the challenges that are facing us. And they also know when we're full of ourselves instead of full of the Spirit of God because it looks like it and it smells like it. The Apostle Paul understood this 
And I just thank the Lord he showed that to me, but it took years. It took decades to begin to see this. It's one thing to be broken by this world and try and fight your way out of that of your own strength. It's another entirely to be broken in order for Christ to be your completer. That's a good broken. That's a very different broken. I have a friend in San Antonio. If you walk up to him and ask him how he's doing, he'll answer, perfectly weak, thank you. Perfectly weak. Almost done, guys. Chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is now giving the result in his life. How he looks at things. He pulls all the pieces together and finally he comes to a conclusion that I can take with me Tuesday afternoon, Friday morning, whatever it might be. <laughs> Let me paraphrase this drastically, okay? Forgive me for this, Lord, okay? <laughs> World, if the Lord lets me stay, I'll continue to minister, function, and do whatever he wants. No matter where it takes me, no matter what's going on, no matter how often I have to get up off my back again because I've just been knocked down for the 175th time or broken again, whatever it takes, I'll keep going because you have granted me the privilege of being your man in this world. I am your hands, your feet, your eyes. I'm the one that looks compassion on the poor. I'm the one whose feet run to do good. Whatever reason, and I don't understand, God has chosen the likes of you and me to impact this world with the beauty and glory of his son. He could zap everybody. He could shazam the whole thing, and it would be over with. But he doesn't. He chooses you and me. And that means broken vessels are necessary. So bring it on, world. God's allowed me this privilege, and as long as he gives me breath, I'll keep on keeping on. Oh, by the way, and if you take me out, if it's time for it to be over, if it's time to destroy me, that's only because you're allowed to. Because as long as his purpose is still fulfilled in me and he has continued purposes in that, you can't touch me. I am bulletproof. There's no way you can take me out. Nobody leaves a millisecond early, and nobody stays a millisecond longer. There's one person who grants life and one person who sanctions death. He uses tools, he uses minions, he uses all sorts of things to accomplish that purpose in time and space. But he's the author, he's the beholder, he's the holder together, and he's the final word. If I die, no matter what the cause, no matter what the effect, no matter what the <laughs> implement that's used... It's because you've taken me home. And where's the downside for that? So let me stay. You're my strength. You're my power. You're my wholeness in my brokenness. Take me out. Awesome. I'm home. So world, take your best shot. Because you can't touch me. And if you're allowed to touch me, he will bring glory to himself, and it really is, ultimately, in my best interest. So take your best shot. 
What do you do with a guy that gave me my life verse? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home in this body or absent from this body and present with him, to be pleasing to him. You know how freeing it is when I don't care what you think of me <laughs> or what kind of esteem you hold me in? My ambition is not to be controlled by the circumstances of this life, not to be jerked around by every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and certainly not to be cuddled up in the corner in my own fears and insecurity. Uh-uh. Bring it on, world. My ambition is to please him, whatever that is, moment by moment. I want to smell like Jesus. And I know I'll never fulfill that assignment without living in brokenness. You have no idea where I've been, what I've done. How many letters to moms and sweethearts I've written. How many men I've buried. How many people bled out on the floor of a chopper. Many mangled kids have been reassembled so that there's at least a body to put in the ground. Been there, okay. All that. And my childhood. And everything in between. And there's a lot in between. <laughs> All that keeps me broken. and whole all at the same time. Circumstances should not control us, gentlemen. You rise to whatever responsibilities in front of you. If you get smacked down or it doesn't work, get up, go again. I have a t-shirt. sharing it with my little brother this morning. Crawling is allowed. Crying is allowed. Bleeding is allowed. Quitting is not. We have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Dead or alive. Father, thank you for this time, for these brothers. I would trust your spirit would use something meaningful from all these words. Help us to see, to be more like him. Move in our hearts, move in our lives. Make us like your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Let's stand together and sing one last song together.
Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are still, when striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone, in Christ alone Who took on flesh set up for tomorrow. That'd be awesome. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for all the men that you brought here. And um, God, I pray, I pray that you would use us, use us in this city. God, what Cheyenne needs most is broken pots where the glory of Christ is displayed, where the gospel is heard, 
God, use us to bring the gospel to a world that so desperately needs good news, the greatest news in the universe. And um, God, if there's, any, uh, if there's anybody here who's never, you know, they're just tr- maybe just trying to figure out what it means to follow you. Maybe they're just trying to figure out what it means to believe in you. God, I just pray that they would not leave here until they talk to somebody. And that they would hear these words, whether it's through the live stream or in this room, that they would hear these words. Jesus, your son, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. That they would hear the words of the Apostle Paul. That all who confess with their mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in their heart, that you, O Father, raised him from the grave, will be saved that they will hear these words, that there is salvation found in no one else but the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. And that if, uh, you, if you believe that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, the perfect life on our behalf, in our place, and died a death that we deserved, every single one of us in this room, those watching the live stream, a death that, that we deserved, Jesus died in our place, Uh, taking on the full wrath of you, Father, a holy God that we deserved. He did that in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. That all who believe that and believe that on the third day he rose from the grave will be saved. And for the rest of us, God, men who in this room who are broken, men who are maybe besides themselves, not sure what the next step is, God, that they would take these words that they heard from, from Ed, they'll take them home, they'll stew on them, they'll open up your word, and they will surrender themselves to you so that they can begin the process of having their hearts healed through your son Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.